of this message this morning is more thoughts on wisdom. The reason I say more uh, is because, as I mentioned before, Solomon uh, wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. There's differing, differing uh, theories of who wrote the book. I, I take the one that Solomon wrote that, as well as the book of Proverbs. And if that being the case, who wrote, the same guy wrote both books, it would seem almost logical at this point that he would just put sort of a footnote there that says, see the whole book of Proverbs, because what we have in chapter 7 are more Proverbs. Um, A proverb is a short little statement about some truth of life that is stated in a way that causes you to have to think. So the truth is there, the nugget's there, but it's usually with an illustration or this as this to try to get you to think. There are different ways that Bible writers use to get us to think. And one of those ways is by using genres of literature. I mean, we do some of the same thing, we just do it in different ways because of our communication. We can bold things. We can capitalize them, we can put them in italics, we can do all those kinds of things. Uh, They had different ways in ancient literature to do that. One of those ways is through a proverb. A proverb slows the reader down to where you have to, you question, you're like, why why did he say that? Uh, Or it puts you deeper into this little statement. So that's what's going on in chapter 7 the thing about Proverbs is it, at times it can seem as if they're all disconnected. So you probably heard Proverbs that I read there that you've heard before. Maybe you even have, you know, the first one here, you maybe even had that on a bookmark or, you know, frame some whatever. These are little statements. And so the question is, in a book that seems very cohesive to draw us to, it's hard to capture the meaning of life. It's hard to get your arms around it. Vanity of vanities, there's, there's a cohesive theme that runs through the book. Why is this kind of slapped in here? And is there any kind of theme that draws this particular text together? And I'm going to suggest that there is. And let me give to you what I believe that is and then explain it for the rest of the time. This passage is going to encourage people in times of adversity. Now, if you look through the Proverbs of what we just read here, several of them refer to some kind of pushback, adversity. I mean, it starts with death. Nobody's going to argue that that's adversity. But here, let me give the statement again. This passage is going to encourage people in their times of adversity, times of suffering, to trust in God's sovereignty by seeking to walk joyfully in the best possible imperfect path. Let me state that again because there's several pieces to that. So what this is going to do is to help us in times of adversity to trust in God's sovereignty by seeking to walk joyfully It's one thing to say we trust in God's sovereignty, we know something. How do we do that? Here he's going to say, walk joyfully in the best possible imperfect path. 
Now, just to kind of, before I get into the points, let me give you a little taste of why I'm saying this. Look at verse 13. Look at verse 13. Consider the work of God. Remember we said in a couple previous messages, God is not often brought up in every single chapter of this book. So when He is, that's, that's a big deal. So here He says clearly, consider the work of God. And He's going to give a phrase in a question. This is the work of God. How, who can make straight what He has made crooked? Now this is a verse, this is, one, this is a powerful verse on the sovereignty of God, but it's, it's not a straight path. It's a crooked path. It's in the little theme that I gave, walking joyfully in the best possible imperfect path. You see, in the book of Ecclesiastes, what Ecclesiastes is looking at is life. And we're seeing these different facets of life, and so it automatically kind of brings in our mind, okay, this is not the way to live, this is not the way to live, this is not the way to live, so how should we live? And so we then have assumptions about how we should live, and what he's going to do in this text, a very powerful text of Scripture, he is going to help us to know how to live and how to walk. Not in cynicism. Well, I guess it's all worthless anyways. I hope I got some mansion up in glory. Not in cynicism. He's going to help us to walk, but He's going to help us to walk, folks, in the reality of a crooked path. We're going to explain that here in this message. So, these two points for this message. We need to consider what is better. One of the words that is highlighted in these first 14 verses of is the word better. I mean, he uses it over and over. This is better than this. This is better than this. This is better than this. So we're going to consider what is better. And then the second point, we're going to do what he says. We need to consider the work of God. Look at chapter 7 and verse 1. I'm going to read these three verses again and try to get some. I'm not going to comment on every verse in this passage because some of these verses are could be whole messages, topical messages. But I'm going to highlight these verses for sure. A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death. And can I supply the word? Better than the day of birth. All right, so he's putting it alongside there. Verse 2, it is better to go to the house of mourning. What's the house of mourning? It is the place of death. It is a funeral. It's better to do that than to go to the house of feasting. That just means it's not, it's, that has nothing to do with nutrition or health. That has everything to do with the house of feasting. That's a place where there's happiness, okay? For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. And now he's saying it very clearly. Sorrow is better than laughter. Now let me just ask you a question. Do you find that to be true in your own personal life? Would you rather be very down... Or would you rather be with friends and be happy and laugh? And don't, 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 don't say, I'd rather be down because it's more spiritual. Don't try to do that. No, it's something, there's something he's getting at because no one wants to be down and just sit and sulk. So what's getting at? Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of faith, face, the heart is made glad. Now, I want you to think for a moment just about the Proverbs. And I'm talking about the book of Proverbs. And I'm going to highlight just a verse in the book of Proverbs to illustrate he, he's doing something different here. He's like, he's like turning Proverbs on its head. 
So in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 6 and verse 6, very uh, famous verse, very popular verse says this. Go to the ant. I mean, he's literally telling people, look at an ant. Okay, that wouldn't have been hard to do. Look at an ant. Oh, sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Now, you tell me what that means. <laughs> I think it's pretty obvious. I think that we could take children in uh, children's church right now and say that verse and probably a little kid raise her hand and say that I need to clean my room instead of letting my stuff lay around. I think that there could be a number of different illustrations. It's not that hard to understand. It is a great illustration, easy to understand. Now, now take that in the book of Proverbs and put it alongside verse 3. Sorrow is better than laughter. Okay, now it's clear what it means, but what, is he, what does he mean? <laughs> I mean, I understand, look at the ant, work hard, don't be lazy. I understand, that's, 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 that's stuff that even non-Christian people are trying to do. But how is sorrow better than laughter? I actually, I actually thought that sorrow could pull people down. I actually thought that if you were in a small group of people, I'm talking about a church small group, and the small group leader said, tonight we're not going to talk about any blessings. We're just going to talk about what's wrong. So I want to go around the circle, and I want you to just name something that you're struggling with and that's wrong. That's all we're going to do. I think that most people sitting in that group would, would say, okay, but I think he's doing that so that we'll pray about those things. And at the end, he just says, we're just going to sit and we're going to think about our problems. I just don't think that's a small group you want to continue with. We wouldn't think that was healthy for us to do that. So I want to just state this because I think it's an assumption that comes into the book of Ecclesiastes and this passage because he's good at writing Proverbs. If Solomon's the same guy that wrote Proverbs Ecclesiastes, he is good at writing Proverbs, and he's skillfully taking this. He's turning it differently, and so I want to make an to, to recognize an assumption, and that is that living wisely requires a different type of thinking. So in the book of Proverbs, to say, look at the ant, sluggard, and consider her ways. That, that you could even, if you, were, if you were a public school teacher, and you were in a classroom, and you're not able to actually bring your faith to bear on that classroom, might even take a verse like that and say, oh, there's an ancient, uh, liter- in ancient literature, uh, the Bible, there's this, there's this verse that says, look at the ant, work hard like an ant. And you could get non-Christian kids to look at that and be like, oh, yeah, I need to work hard like an ant. That's what, and then they step on the ant, and uh, then that, the illustration dies. There's nothing uh, more. But, you know, you could take something. But here's something that would be hard. Sorrow is better than laughter. Let me state again the theme. Okay? Is there anything that ties this passage together? This passage is going to encourage us in times of adversity to trust in God's sovereignty by seeking to walk joyfully in the best possible imperfect path. I think sometimes when we come to the Bible in general, we may not say it, and, and maybe we would, 
maybe we would even think teenagers might think this, but not adults, but I think all people think this. I just don't know if the Bible wants us to have much fun. I don't know if the Bible wants to just constantly restrain, 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 and we're just kind of, we don't say it, but we're just kind of like it's trying to get us to some form of acceptable Amishness about even our desires so that we're living a life of constantly restraining. Let me just state very clearly, based upon what we've seen so far, the preacher, Solomon, wants us to have joy and to live joyfully because he's saying that at different strategic parts of the book. He's saying, enjoy the life you have now. Just don't be this guy who's always looking over yonder. So he wants us to have joy. The other thing I want to bring into this is that he's saying this. Don't lose the context. He's saying this in the context of everything he's just said previously, which is walking out the church door and seeing what? Justice, oppression, unfairness. The hardest things in life. So I want you to get the context that now as as Solomon is helping us to live in this life, he's not talking about the problems are over here, I have a problem-free path over here, and there's maybe a marginal amount of joy, but that's, that's for heaven someday. That's not for now at all. No. He is having us to walk through difficult lives. Because, here's the deal, some folks, I would say many folks, live life in such a way that there's this constant tension that their problem is really never going away, so God must not want them to have joy in this life. And what he's saying here is not, whoo, I finally got the problems behind me. Now I can live a joy-filled life. And here's a quick few things to do that. Ecclesiastes 7.1 again. Let's, let's look at this carefully. A good name is better than precious ointment. Now, is there anybody that would disagree with that? Because it's obvious. He's stating it obviously. Now, precious ointment would have been valuable in that day. I mean, it's not going down to Walmart Target and just buying some lotion. I mean, this is the process of it. And oftentimes, I don't know what they get it from, leaves and tree bark or whatever. And so by the time you have, remember in the New Testament, the woman that brought that costly ointment broke it. And and we say that that's the equivalent of a year's wages. I mean, so we're talking, he's talking about something really, really valuable here. He's saying, you take some of the most valuable earthly substance, what's better, that or having a good reputation? I mean, everybody knows the answer to that. Having a good reputation. That's easy. That part of the Proverbs easy. But then he says this. The day of death is better than the day of birth. And I'm substituting better because it's, it's there. That's what he wants us to see. You can put them right alongside each other. Let's ask, what's better? Is the day of death a better choice than the day of birth. Now again, don't go alter spiritual on me and say, yes it is because we will see the Lord. That's not what he's wanting us to do. He's wanting us to just assess what's better, death or life. The answer to that is pretty obvious too. It's life. Because what is death? Death 
is the consequence of my sin. It's the la- Death is the last say of sin on a life to say it won. Now, I know for a Christian, I understand, but let's just parse it a little bit. Death is saying sin won. This person was a sinner and sin won. So what is he saying when death is better than life? Let me give an illustration. We had this little guy uh, born here a couple weeks ago, Ryan, to Jessica and Stephen. I believe he's still in the NICU. He's uh, trying to get him eating and things. He's doing fine, but uh, he, they have to monitor. He's just a little tiny guy. When he was born, what do you say about it? What do you say about it? By the way, I haven't seen him yet, so um, I'm just saying some things because, I mean, I think a baby, I think a baby looks like a baby, and I know that's offensive because there's particulars, but you know, it's a baby's a baby. But there's some things that I can imagine being said. He's this long, he weighs this much, his his body is this, he's got wrinkly little fingers. You know, and then people get into, well, his nose is uncle, and his ears are like, you know, and, but, but I would say probably within 15 to 20 minutes, the facts of Ryan, they've expended them. Uh, we don't know what his favorite color is. We don't know what kinds of foods he's going to like and not like. Uh, we don't know what... Uh, kinds of career choices he might make. We don't know those things about him, right? We just don't know. We don't even know if he's going to be an Eagles fan. Wait, wait a minute. We do know that. Okay, okay, we do know that. That that with that family is certain. He has no choice. But I mean, most of him, we don't know. We don't know. Okay. And I want to be sensitive to this because the house of mourning is where many of us have been for the last couple months with different folks. Go to the end of a person's life. What do you say then? A lot. You know what they like. You know what they dislike. And those aren't categories that are simple. It can be a lot. You know who they loved. And yes, there are times where you know that they didn't love very much. You even know that. You know a lot about a person at this point that if we go back to little Ryan, we just don't know much about him. And we know the valuable things. We just don't know much about him. What Solomon is saying here is that death brings a clarity that enables us right now to think about not only do I want set what's what I want said of me then but it helps us to engage with life now i'm saying this repeatedly because ecclesiastes says this repeatedly we should not be people who are just tolerating this life we should not be the kind of people who are just kind of, it's, it's just kind of bad, and it's just kind of this. And you know what it is? It's bad. There's lots of bad stuff. There's lots of, we don't want to, and he doesn't shy away from any of that. He says justice, uh, injustice, oppression, all of that. But if, if, if death 
and knowing that's coming can bring more clarity to now, then it will help us to be more engaged, more alive to now, instead of always hoping that tomorrow brings a better day. People who have suffering in their lives and adversity to severe degrees and have had to think about that final day. Know this. They know when they get out of the car to go into Walmart, that even going in there on a cold day and having to go through the crowd and having to stand in the line is a gift. Is a gift. You've heard people say things like that. Whereas before, it's just terrible. And why don't they this? And why doesn't the management? And all this kind of stuff. But, but to think about it, and it brings a clarity, not to being kind to Walmart, but it brings a clarity to my own heart that my days are numbered. And I have to be engaged with now appropriately. And so verse 2 says, it is better to go to the house of mourning. I mean, in reality, is it better to, to, be, to die than to live? No, it's not better. He knows that. But death brings a reality, an engagement, so that he can say, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to his heart. Why? Because it brings life into focus. Verses 4 to 6 that I'm not going to read again are what people do when they don't live like this. I mean, it's, it's, it's different expressions of the house of feasting with, with no uh, governor on it. It's just doing what I want to do. Verses 4 to 6. Now, verses 7 to 10 are more examples of something better than something. So verses 1 to 3, he's talking about Thinking about the end and death is better than this. Verses 7 to 10 are more examples of something better than another thing. I'm only going to highlight one of those. Because it's unusual and it's something I think we can all relate to. Look at verse 10. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom, for, for it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Now stop and think about that for just a moment. For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Uh, you don't have to ask your or raise your hand on this, but I wonder if you have ever thought, why were the former days better than these? Now this is written a long time ago, man. <laughs> so when they talk about their good old days, I mean, there's some good old day parts of their lives that weren't so good. Slavery in Egypt for 400-some years, so, so on and so forth. I mean, so, okay, so we think about this in our contemporary time, and he says, for it is not from wisdom that you ask this. I want to stop and talk about nostalgia for just a moment because he's bringing it up here, and it seems, okay, you go from death, and then you go uh, down, and, and uh, now we're at nostalgia. Why is nostalgia so addictive. Why is holding the present intention to the past something common to all mankind, even from thousands of years ago? I mean, the only person who, well, even Adam and Eve probably could say that. Things used to be better when, before we sinned. 
But I mean, before they sinned, they had no good old days, you know? I mean, it was, they were created. But everybody since then has this temptation. Why is nostalgia such a temptation? And how in the world does it fit into a text of, of how to face adversity with wisdom, recognizing the sovereignty of God? Well, let's talk about it for just a moment. What is nostalgia? It is a form of escapism, is it not? I, uh, I've told you before that, because um, uh, I think somebody a few years ago told me this, and I finally uh, started doing some checking. Uh, this woman, um, uh, weather woman, Janice Dean, uh, started probably a couple years ago following her. Uh, she has multiple sclerosis. She talks about it. And uh, so, you know, I just have followed her through the years and different medications she's been on, things that would be of interest to me. Um, she just recently came out with a book. And, um, and so I got the book and I started listening to it. She's reading the book. Uh, I don't know if it would be of interest to everybody, but um, uh, because of the, uh, uh, the health part, it was of interest to me. Uh, she's not a Christian. Um, as far as I can, I can tell, she's not a Christian. Uh, at the beginning of the book, just as a little tidbit of that, at the beginning of the book... Uh, she's telling kind of her early life, and she said, uh, I was born on May 9th, 1970 in Ottawa, Canada. I said, you've got to be kidding me. She was born the exact same day, exact same year I was. Um, I'm not from Canada. We're not sisters, but a brother and sister. But I was like, no way. I just feel this kind of connection with her life. So her life began on the same day that my life began. And so as she's telling her life, I'm tracking with some of the things she's talking about. So when she talks about growing up in the 80s, she's talking about the music. She's talking about the movies. She's talking about the big hair. She's talking about that stuff. You know how I feel about that? When she's talking about that, I feel warm and transported to a better day, honestly. I, I was listening to it in the car, and as she's kind of going through this, I'm, I'm literally, I found myself smirking as she's talking about this stuff, and I felt like the car was gliding, and I was back in the 80s. I love the 80s. I love them. But here's the deal, though. I don't want to go back to that. I don't want to live without Wi-Fi. I don't. I don't. I don't. I can't. I can't. I can't. Say yes, you can't. I can't. Um, I don't want to go back to putting my tape, my cassette tape, and having to fast forward to to find the song I want to listen to. I don't want to do that. I don't want Rochelle and my girls to have big hair and big bangs. I don't. But when I hear her talk about it on the thing, I feel so warm. I feel almost in a sense that that is better than this. Why is that? Why is it? You can relate to that too. Some of you are like that. Why is it? Here's why it is, folks, and here's why he sticks it here. Because when we're in adversity, we do look for an escape. And nostalgia is one of the escapes. It's one of the ways that we, and what happens with nostalgia is is 
always, 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 it is much better than it actually was, right? Always. Now, some of you are like, no, it wouldn't. I'm not going to argue with that, okay? But it, it is. It's overblown in our minds because our minds enlarge upon it. Why? Because we're trying to be a problem? Because we're trying to bring the 80s back? No, it's because we have something we're facing, and so we go back. We go back. I can say this compassionately with no offense, whatever. Why, why do we tend to think that older people are more nostalgic? Well, they've got a lot of life behind them to think about. But they also face a lot of adversity. There's health things they can't get over anymore. The the runway of life is running out. There's a lot of adversity. And so so our minds naturally are going to go back because we all do that. And what happens for me, for you, is we, here's here's what naturally happens. We minimize God's work in the present. Now Now, I'm not saying you're against God. I'm not saying you don't believe God. I'm just saying... If we don't catch ourselves in nostalgia, I'm not talking about just older people now. I'm talking about me, thinking about the 80s. I'm talking about those of us who are experiencing empty nest, the beginnings of empty nest, and remember what it was like to have kids in the van and all of that. What it was like before someone's life took a derail and they were right with God then, but not all kinds of things. What can happen is we minimize God's work in the present. Because it, all, it seems like God was working so much there in the past. When I go back to the 80s in my mind, if I go back and I string that out, I can think of the camp I went to. I can think of the fireside service of the lead uh, counselor, Chris, when he gave an illustration about his ring. I can hear this in my mind. And I remember thinking to myself, I want to commit myself wholly to the Lord. I remember when there was this incredible feel that God was working in my life. I can think, and what I can do is I can begin to think, God was so active back then, but now, all right. And it just kind of goes like that. It's like, it's like I track with the vanity, vanity, it's all is vanity. It wasn't vanity back then, but it is now. But has God stopped working? How did we in our own minds minimize God not working now, but he was working back in? The second thing it does is it makes the past more attractive than it really was. Why do we feel like that? Because, because Ecclesiastes, he already said, God has set eternity in our hearts. The longing, here's the deal, the longing for what was back for me in the 80s, the sense, the feel, the this, the that, is actually a spiritual longing. Because I'm longing, and why does it always appear better than it was? Because I'm longing. Because God has set eternity in your heart, but the longing can't be for the past. The longing has to be for the future, which will be fully realized when you're in heaven someday, if you're a believer. So when I'm in heaven someday, I know this is going to scare the fire out of some of you, but when I'm in heaven someday, it's going to be like the 80s for eternity. Not the big hair, not the cassette tape. That would be the worst thing you get in heaven. He hands me a cassette tape. Huh. Not talking about that, but the feel I have about that, the feel some of you have about the 50s. 
feel some of you have about the 2000s. <laughs> the feel, the feel, the feel. It's because your heart longs for Eden. It longs for Eden. We're in Eden lost. We're recovering Eden, but someday it'll be Eden for all of eternity. That's why nostalgia is so attractive. Number two, as we conclude this message this morning, we need to consider the work of God. Verse 13. We're doing that. You know why we're doing that? Because it says it right here, consider the work of God. I don't know how you can get past that and not make that a point. But here's where it kind of goes, again, to the proverb part. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Can I tell you, this is one of the most powerful verses in the whole book. What we have here is almost like the teacher giving a math problem that they know the class can't solve. So let's just answer the question. Let's just answer it. Who can make straight what he, God, has made crooked? What's the answer to that? Can you... Is it you? Is it me? Is it the pastor? Is it the president? Who can do it? The obvious answer. Even Solomon giving that to people, he was a great king. Even the answer he wants people to come to is no one. But it doesn't solve it for us. It doesn't tie it up for us. You know why? Because of, well, the word crooked. What does crooked mean? Here's a definition from uh, commentator Philip Ryken. When the preacher talks about something crooked, he is not referring to something that is morally out of line. God help us. God did not put an evil, hell-bent man in place to go to a mosque and kill those people. This is not God. This is evil, pure evil. This is not, look at that and say, what, God did it. This is not what this is saying. God could never be the author of evil. Instead, he is talking about some trouble or difficulty in life we wish we could change, but we cannot alter. So let me ask you a question. What is something you wish you could change, but you can't? I want you to think about that right now. What is something you wish you could change, but you can't? Is it your appearance? I mean, we often think teenagers are that way, but I'll tell you what, a lot of 40-year-olds, including myself, are like that too. You know, we wish we looked like what we did in the 80s. Now, some of us don't, but some of us do. We were big, hulking in the weight room and all of that. Is it your mental faculties? Is it your health condition? Is it your friends? It starts to come nearer and nearer. Is it your spouse? I mean, we would never say this publicly, but is it your kids? I mean, you know, we wouldn't say, I wish that kid wasn't in my family, but why did we get stuck with that personality? What is something, is it your salary, is it your job, is it your church? What is something that you wish you could change, but you can't? 
I said before that the book of Ecclesiastes does not, his intent is not to lead us to cynicism. The point of the book of Ecclesiastes is not to just lay all this stuff out and say, well, here's a guy that tried it all and even he thinks it's just not going to work. So what? It's not the point. It is neither that, nor is it a light, silly faith. What I would like to call a bumper sticker faith, nothing against spiritual bumper stickers, but you got to distill down on a bumper sticker some you know, pithy statement about the Christian life. That's not what he's leading us to as well. He's leading us to some intense reflection. This phrase, what is crooked that cannot be made straight, he's already used one time in the book. It's in chapter 1 and verse 15. He says it right there. What is crooked that cannot be made straight? You know the difference between chapter 1 and verse 15 and chapter 7 is that he doesn't mention God in chapter 1. He doesn't mention God in chapter 1. So if you take that, which is, folks, the reality of life, no one has the perfect life. If I could just put it in our vernacular, nobody has the perfect life. Nobody has the life without crookedness in it. Nobody has that kind of life. So what do you do with that kind of life? Well, in chapter 7, he brings God into it, and he says there is a way to live that kind of life so that you don't live your life bitter, expended, cynical, fatalistic. There's a way to do that. Let me bring in the theme again. This passage is encouraging us in times of adversity, times of suffering, to trust in God's sovereignty by seeking to walk joyfully in the best possible imperfect path. When he says in this text, it is not from wisdom that you ask this back in the nostalgia, it's not because we're looking to live for today, we're looking to live back there. He's saying, look, I want you to live today. I want you to live now, but you say, i got a crooked path. I have a health problem. I've got a kid problem. I've got a spouse problem. I've got a job problem. I've got a relational problem. And he would probably say back, yes, you're human. You've just confessed you're human. So what do we do? We look to the sovereignty of God. Now, I'll admit, in this verse 13, I wish it said, consider the work of God Who can make straight what is crooked? I kind of feel like I wish he left God out of it. Because as soon as it says what he has made crooked, it feels to me like the crookedness God had something to do with. Let me illustrate. Uh, Eric and I were out making a visit this last week, and we were talking about this verse. And I was trying to get like what his thoughts on it were. And he, he pointed out to me that he had heard a sermon in the past where a guy gave an illustration. Um, and so long and short of it is, I, I said, oh, i got to look that up. Well, this is, why I'm not, I'm, this is why I'm glad I'm not in the 80s so I don't have to go to the library and get microfish and spend all day and say, I can't find it. I found that illustration in three minutes. Boom. I want to live for today. I don't want to go back then. So, there's a guy who was a back then guy named Thomas Boston. He was a Scottish preacher during the 17, early 1700s. He pastored a church and uh, didn't live long. He's only 56 years old when he passed away. But during his lifetime, uh, they, they were expecting a child. 
And in expecting that child, and here's another reason I'm glad we don't live in the olden days, he was going to name his child Ebenezer, okay? Uh, Now, again, smirk, smirk aside, it, it, it is a biblical name. Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. My recommendation to parents, though I don't want to lord over your families, you not name your kid Ebenezer, okay? So, uh, unless you want to call him Ben or something like that. But he named his, his uh, a son that was born Ebenezer because he, he trusted God. He wanted that testimony. Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. And the baby died. Obviously, one of the most tragic things that a family can face is the death of a child. Well, in time, his wife was expecting again, and it was a boy, and he had it on his heart. I want to name him Ebenezer. But he struggled. Because now, it's a very acute struggle that, not just for his congregation, but he didn't want to put like this stamp of, we trust God, and it happened again. But he wrestled through it, and they named the boy Ebenezer, and he died. Thomas Boston continued to pastor, and during his pastorate there, he wrote a sermon based upon verse 13 called The Crook and the Lot. And he thought about the crookedness that had come into his life that was not going to be straightened out. And for Christians, what's so hard is what this verse says is that God's involved in it. I mean, it's almost that somehow, somewhere, some God's over that. He's bigger than that. I've got to sink my heart deep into the sovereignty of God. This passage encourages us in times of adversity to trust God's sovereignty by seeking to walk joyfully in the best possible imperfect path. Let's pray. God, we want to confess this morning that we want all our paths to be straight. We want all our paths to have no rocks. We want all of our paths to be cleared out. We want somebody to go ahead and clear all the rocks out so we can have a clean path. But God, we don't want just a totally perfect path. We, it can have a little bit, but just not too many trials. That's the way I feel. And we confess that this thinking is so self-absorbed, but so human. And I want to ask today, Lord, that you would help us all to not push you away, to, to confess that some of the trials are so harsh and beat so strong against the rocks that they can crush the soul. But even if we are beaten down, we will not be destroyed because you do hold us fast. What can separate us from the love of God? Shall temptation, shall tribulation, shall peril. Nothing can separate us from your love. That's not what my heart says. May what is true be more real to us than what we feel. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, maybe that's the prayer you pray in the quietness of this moment. May the truth 
of God's love and grace and sovereignty be more real to me than what I feel at this moment. Maybe you're just angry. Maybe you're just bitter about your lot. Oh, that's so common for so many of us. Maybe your confession is, I'm bitter and angry about my lot because I don't like this crookedness. I want this straightened out. I don't want this. You confess that. God can uphold with His everlasting arms your complaint. But don't let go of Him. Don't push Him out. Lord, as we conclude this time of talking with You corporately, may we see Your hand at work in our lives even today. Help us to see it, to open our eyes, to celebrate what you have joyfully given us. In Jesus' name, amen.